This is Grading the Nutmegs Extended Episode 7, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. You're about to hear from an eyewitness to history, someone who experienced firsthand one of our nation's darkest periods, the McCarthy era when free speech and the right of dissent were under attack. It's a story told with humor, grace, passion, and optimism by Al Martyr, now in his 90s, a lifelong communist, labor, civil rights, and peace activist. He's interviewed by Connecticut Explored assistant publisher Mary Donahue, author of A Life of Conviction in the spring 2016 issue of Connecticut Explored. Mary and Al are joined by Judge Andrew Rohrabach, cousin of Martyr's defense lawyer, the late celebrated civil rights attorney Catherine Rohrabach. This podcast is from a program held at the New Haven Museum on April 14, 2016. Welcome to Extended Episode 7 of Grading the Nutmeg. Welcome. So glad to see you. And this evening's discussion is co-sponsored by Connecticut Explored, which is the magazine of Connecticut history. So I'd like to welcome our guest, Al Martyr, and Judge Andrew Warbeck, and thank Elizabeth Norman, publisher and assistant publisher of Mary Donahue of Connecticut Explored, for choosing to focus the spring issue on the state's political history and our citizens' civic engagement, which is so very important to highlight and remember during this presidential election year. Our moderator this evening is Mary Donahue, who is a historian and journalist in her own right, and her article about Al Martyr, entitled A Life of Conviction, appears in the spring issue, and we've got copies downstairs um, available if you haven't already picked up a copy. And I also want to tell you we will have a, a small reception following um, our presentation, so I hope you will stay for that. So please welcome Mary Donahue. Thank you. Great. I want to thank Margaret Ann so much because uh, the article is a two-page article. It should be an entire book. And so there's so many, so much wonderful material. We're going to spend an hour, a little bit, about an hour today talking about it. But I want to thank the New Haven Museum so much because this is really hidden history, hidden New Haven history. Uh, as she said, there's magazines downstairs. There's also a yellow fl one-page flyer that gives you just a smattering of the newspaper articles I found concerning the trial. They can be accessed on Ancestry.com, and it, they were amazing, but it'll give you a little flavor for the, uh, the way the trial was covered and for the era. If you are not already a Connecticut Explored magazine subscriber, we think you should be, especially for the summer issue, which is our staycation, go out and find it in Connecticut issue. You'll, you'll read about exhibits and places to go, and then we hope you subscribe. I also need to thank our wonderful publisher, Elizabeth Norman. Uh, she's fearless and she's willing to dig deep, and that's what we did to, to discover the program for today. So I, I need to thank her for all the support that she gives us to do that. Uh, history is messy and it's not usually politically correct and it's time consuming, but it is fascinating, and tonight's story is just wonderful. I want to introduce our two 
guests and tell you a little bit about them. Uh, El Martyr, as I think everybody in New Haven probably knows, is a lifelong Communist Party member. He's advocated for justice, equality, and world peace for more than seven decades, which just is amazing. He's a lifelong New Haven resident. He remains a community activist, and he currently serves as the president of the Amistad Committee, the chairman of the Connecticut Freedom Trail, and the president of the US Peace Council. He's a World War II veteran and received the Bronze Star and is a University of Connecticut alum. Uh, seated to Al's right, Judge Andrew Orbeck earned a BA from Yale University and his law degree from the University of Virginia's Law School. He was a member of the General Assembly for 18 years and serves now as a Superior Court Judge since 2013. He worked as a partner at the family law firm of Rohrbeck and Rohrbeck, which was founded by his great-grandfather. He is a cousin of, Aunt, of Catherine Rohrbeck, the celebrated civil rights attorney who served as Mr. Martyr's defense attorney during New Haven's Smith trial. I want to take a moment and set the stage for today's program. We're going to focus on New Haven's Smith trial from 1954 to 56. This is a huge topic. But today's program benefits from Al's firsthand account of FBI surveillance, phone taps, fear, and loss of employment due to his arrest. Many of us have seen two Academy Award-nominated movies from last year that were based on true stories from the period. Trumbo was about the blacklisted Hollywood screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, and Bridge of Spies was about the attorney James Donovan's defense of Rudolph Abel. They, both of these movies really convey, in a small part, the mood of the country during that time period. In 1940, Congress passed the Alien Registration Act, which was known as the Smith Act. It required all non-citizen adult residents to register with the government, and it made it a crime, quote, to knowingly or willfully advocate with duty, necessity, desirability of overthrowing or destroying any government in the United States by force or violence with the intent to cause the overthrow or destruction of any government in the United States, unquote. This is part of what's referred to as the second Red Scare, fear of communism that permeated American politics, culture, and society from the late 40s through the 50s during the opening phases of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. This episode of political repression lasted longer and was more pervasive than the Red Scare that followed the Bolshevik Re Revolution in World War I. Popularly known as McCarthyism, after Senator Joseph McCarthy, who made himself famous in 1950 by claiming that large numbers of communists had infiltrated the US State Department, the second Red Scare predated and outlasted McCarthy. Nevertheless, McCarthyism became the label for the tactic of undermining political point opponents by making unsubstantiated attacks on their loyalty to the United States. During the first Red Scare, an anti-radicalism division was formed within the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. The American Communist Party was founded in 1919. The CPUSA remained small until the Great Depression a huge economic crisis, and the rise of European fascism in the 1930s also helped to increase its appeal. 
During the Great Depression, party members worked to organize industrial and agricultural workers and to boldly denounce lynching, poll taxes, and other aspects of segregation and white supremacy. In 1938, the CPUSA had about 75,000 members. The party was part of a dynamic part of, the broad, of that broader left in the 1930s and 40s that advanced the cause of labor, minority rights, and feminism. The first post-World War II Smith trial was in New York City. This was followed by the so-called second-tier cities, over a dozen cities, including New Haven. Before I turn to our guests, I just want to give you an idea of how a historian's mind works. I had read in L's biography that he had been a communist organizer in New Haven in the 1950s. And I immediately thought, what was that like? Uh, and I've worked with L for over 20 years uh, on projects of the Amistad Committee and the Connecticut Freedom Trail, but did not know that about L until I read that. So when we were planning the spring issue of Connecticut Explored on politics and civic engagement, I thought it was time to talk to Al. After conducting a three-hour interview with Al, I was astonished that the story of New Haven's Smith trials were not widely known. As I drove home, as historians do, I wondered how I could document and verify the story. We don't take anybody's word for it. Um, and so as soon as I got home, I opened up my computer and I went to Ancestry.com, which is not a commercial for them, and put in Al's name. And up popped over 50 newspaper stories in almost as many newspapers from around the country. The Associated Press had covered the trial and it made news. When I discovered that Al's attorney was Catherine Rohrbeck, I couldn't imagine a brighter or more formidable team. So now let's talk to our guests. We're also going to be taping tonight for the new podcast that Connecticut Explored has. A podcast is something you listen to on your computer or on your phone. It's uh, called Grading the Nutmeg. So we hope you look for our podcast. So first questions are for Al. Al, you grew up in New Haven in the Great Depression. Your parents were Abraham and Esther Martyr, owners of a grocery store on Oak Street. What was that like? The depression was all, all around us. And while you would think that someone owned a, a grocery store would be comparatively well off with 17 million workers unemployed. But my folks frankly never earned a, a living in that little grocery store. And we were and many weeks, a sheriff sat in my parents' store at the cash register taking all the receipts because they couldn't afford to pay the bills. So this was the atmosphere. On, on the streets, because there was Oak Street, which no longer exists in New Haven, we would see what my father would call hobos but they're actually workers coming off the trains looking for work. And they would come into the store asking for something to eat. And as a young boy, of course, I would immediately cut something and, and try to give it to them 
and my forefather would say, I cannot feed the entire country. <laughs> and yet he was a very generous person. But this was reflecting the period in which I lived. At the same time, as I was going to high school, beginning with high school, I saw on Oak Street, which was a very, that area which was very mixed. Uh, a few African Americans, some Russians, some Poles, all the immigrants living in the, in the houses or the apartments. A group of people who were gathered around these homes and there were evictions. The landlords were evicting tenants who couldn't pay the above. And this little group would take the furniture and put it back into the house. And I wondered who that group was. And my father said, those are the Reds, the communists, who are putting furniture back into the home so people would have a place to live. That, to me, of course, struck a great chord. Because, of course, they could be arrested for violating the eviction laws. Actually, the second question is, uh, what were those major influences on you when you were growing up, and how did you become politically active? Well, one, one thing led, led to another. Because we had a little store at that time, organizations would come around with posters <laughs> and give you a poster and they would give you two tickets to come to an event. Well, there was an event. There was a, a theater performance with a, a, the famous actor Will Gear in the 30s, he was extremely well, well, well known. And it, it was a labor play. It dealt with Southern workers trying to organize. I went to that play and I became fascinated with the story. And it didn't take long that I asked to join. At that time, I was a, in, at Hill House, a sophomore in Hill House. But there were other factors. There was the Spanish loyalists fighting to maintain their, the Republican government in, in Spain. Hitler was already on the uh, agenda, uh, as was Mussolini and the J Japanese had invaded Manchuria. And as a 14-year-old boy, this became my milieu. This became a factor in my thinking. I wanted to join any force at that point that would be fighting against fascism, fighting for democracy in Spain, etc. And so I joined. I was too young to join the Communist Party, so I joined the Young Communist League. <laughs> and that set me, at that point, to my entire career. 
because what I did at 14 and then 15 and on, at that point, they were disorganizing the trade union movement in New Haven. There was the, the craft unions, the painters, the plumbers, the electricians, the printers. But the sergeants in the New Haven Clock Company and American Steel, all these industrial factories were not organized. So I volunteered to hand out flyers in the morning. At that point, we lived on Davenport Avenue in a small house that was owned by the, the church nearby. And we, it was a four room apartment. And there were, at that point there were five of us. So I slept on a sofa near the window. And early in the morning, my organizer friend, Sid Taylor, would come knock at the window I would quietly get up, dress. I knew where my father kept the keys to the car. We didn't have a garage, so we pushed the car off the, the lawn so my parents wouldn't hear it start. We drove to Sargent's. We drove to Ackley Wire. We drove, handed out our leaflets, pushed the car back when we were through. And I went back into the bed, in my sofa, fully dressed, and waited for my mother to wake me up. <laughs> Many years later, as an adult, and we were talking family talk, my mother said to me, you thought you were fooling us. <laughs> but really, I had said to your father, don't say anything. We're not going to be able to change it. <laughs> and so I became very active. In Hill House, we organized a peace council where we wanted to discuss the wars that were going on. And that had a very lasting effect on me. So in the outside world, there was the industrialization of our country, the trade unions organizing. And all through that period, there were lynchings down south. And we organized vigils and demonstrations protesting what was going on. Two things stayed with me very early. One was the famous saying of, of the famous African-American Frederick Douglass. Power doesn't exceed anything without a struggle. And the other, that Karl Marx, the famous communist, said, white labor can never be free if black labor is in chains. Those two mottos are my lifelong mottos. Without which, without which I, my country cannot get better, cannot provide for its people, cannot be more just. And this, these are the lessons that have stayed with me all that, that time. As a mother, I can appreciate that story. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, 
what got me started on this whole interview was, uh, what was it like to be a Communist Party organizer in New Haven in the early 1950s? <coughs> well, I can proceed to telling everyone that in the YCL, I was the leader, the chairman of the Communist League, after graduating, I didn't go to college immediately. And we organized many things people are not aware of. Southern Connecticut State Union or New Haven Normal School didn't have a, a, a college in, in the evening, nor did it. Was there any college in the state of Connecticut for working class kids? You either gave up work, but there was nothing in the evening. And we organized a campaign, and we were successful. The state legislature agreed to set up a New Haven uh, Teachers College, an evening college. We were so afraid that no one would register that we insisted that everyone who was involved in the campaign had to register. <laughs> and I must tell you, we had perhaps one of the most advanced freshman classes in the state. <laughs> a little older, but very advanced, because everyone wanted to go. I spent the four years, of course, the next four years going into the Army. And another little story before I get to answer, if you may. I went into the Army, into the infantry. And after training with my outfit, they went off to the war, and I was transferred. I learned that that was the Army policy. They weren't going to allow this communist to go overseas. I trained again. After that training, they transferred me again for two years in the U.S. Army. I trained because they refused to allow me to, to go overseas, even though I volunteered. Finally, at the it was about 25th month, I was sent down to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I asked to see the Inspector General, why are they treating me like this? I want to volunteer. And this old Army Sergeant couldn't believe the story. And he said, as long as you're in my outfit, you're going to be treated as an equal. Frankly, not only was I treated as an equal, but they assigned me the job of every day conducting a political class <laughs> for the truth to test what was going on in the war and what, what were the issues. And then I went overseas, of course. I, I went, went overseas for, for the next two years. But Rose, and I must say this, there was a, a detente in the air. The American people were no longer frightened of communists, and they were no longer frightened of the Soviet Union, the first socialist country in, in the world. And as the war proceeded, these were allies. When I start, came back, 
we began to realize that the atmosphere was changing. There was Harry Truman, who practically undid all the goodwill that Roosevelt had established with the socialist world. The atmosphere was changing. And so what happened nationally, of course, we all know. Those of us, the most shameful period in the history of the United States. The Hollywood 10, they began to look for communists in Hollywood. And some of the most distinguished actors and actresses and directors were blacklisted, jailed. They then jailed the national leadership of the Communist Party. And during that atmosphere, those of us who were working in Connecticut, in touch, with, of course, with the people nationally, heard that there may be a roundup of all communists. And so, without going into all of my personal occupation, what I, what I had to do, you know, to try to earn a living, etc., we decided to go underground. So I left my family, I left my, my daughter, and assumed a new name, went to New York, and because I had no longer lived, worked at the, uh, the Communist Party, I had to find a new trade, so I had to go to Boardman Trade, I learned how to become a printer and I secured a job there under a different name, under a union. What it was to be an organizer at that point, I think people had the wrong idea of what we were doing, what communists were doing. The communist movement is a native movement comes out of many years of workers fighting for a, 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 good, a secure job and wages. The miners and on and on, I could go on to say what this long history was. It's a, it's, a, it's a movement of working people for a, more a more just and secure society. And, uh, and I, I must interrupt myself by saying I want to thank the museum, I want to thank the Connecticut Explorer for being bold enough, for being bold enough to initiate a dialogue, especially in this time of an election where someone who calls himself a, a democratic socialist <laughs> has once again brought that name to the surface. Where for workers and ordinary wage earners to be able to take political power for, their, for the common good. Simple. Just simple. During that period was a very difficult period as an organizer because we're all human and we become frightened and fearful. And once the trials began in New York, the Smith Act, and then I should not forget the Rosenberg trial where two people were executed created an atmosphere where suddenly 
the word communist was equal to be calling a spy and a traitor. And so it was a very difficult period. And most of the attention at that point was devoted to the struggle for civil rights and justice. The attack on the trade union movement took place with the Taft-Hartley bill, and little by little the, the trade union movement began to shrink from 35 million during the war to what it is now about 11 million people. Because it's synonymous. You don't attack one without the other. For the struggle for workers' rights in the trade union is the struggle for workers' rights in the Communist Party. One and the same. And so it was very difficult. Tremendous stress and tension. You knew that the two people who in the cart downstairs were there just to intimidate you. The two people who wait, waited for you to come off the train from work were there hoping that you would talk to them. The telephones tapped constantly, threats on the telephone, raids by the police pretending that you had called them, but you knew that they had plotted this themselves to come into the house, terrorize your children, terrorize. And this, this was the atmosphere. And what they succeeded in doing is frightening all our allies. Not everyone belonged to the Communist Party. It was comparatively small in this large country. But many people believed in equality, believed in justice, believed in the rights of workers. And it made it almost impossible to reach them. During that period, we lived in an apartment house. And in the many evenings I would come home and I would see my, the staircase lined with books. People were afraid to keep the classic that they had accumulated over the years for fear that the FBI or something would see that was written by Karl Marx or at that time William Fleety Foster or Vladimir Lenin or some of the notable Italian communists, etc., that were writing about this issue. It was not an easy time. So you, you went underground, you used the name Ken Green, yes. which is hopefully to stay employed for, to support your family. And then you were arrested at your home in New Haven on Memorial Day weekend in 1954 for violation of the Smith Act. And the news of your arrest, plus six other individuals, was actually announced by J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI. Uh, could you describe what your life was like after the arrest and how it affected your family? <clears throat> yeah, just prior, prior to that. Uh, I had secured a, uh, a job in New York and a print shop, and I was fired for trying to organize it into the union. 
the union allowed me to take a test from an apprentice to become a journeyman. And I became a journeyman printer under the name of Kenneth Green. And then, that, like many craft unions, the bosses, owners of shops would go to the union and say, we need two people or five people, and the, the union would assign them. And I secured, they sent me to Stanford, Connecticut. And I, and I worked in a, in a shop in Stanford. One day, I had met the, had a, 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 an appointment with, to meet the former head of the Communist Party of Connecticut in Stanford, Connecticut. And we were walking to get a cup of coffee, and a woman whom we knew had been, as a student member of the Young Communist League, began shouting, spies, spies. And the, so the Stanford police came and arrested us. Uh, uh, no, didn't arrest us, took us in. And they called the FBI and said, we've got two accused spies here. And the Connecticut press immediately picked that up. The FBI said you couldn't hold them, they hadn't done anything. I had been voted the shop steward of, of that shop, and I had to go back and face the workers who were convinced that I was a spy. And explained to him that I wasn't Kenneth Green, that I was Al Martin. If anything that I've done in my entire life, that's the only thing I regret. I have always been Al Martin. And that brief interlude where it's Kenneth Green. I could no longer stay at that shop, and I came back and looked for another work. And I secured a job at, of all places, a Republican-controlled newspaper, Westport News. <laughs> and, and the owners of the Westport News made it very clear to the workers and to me that I had every right for that job. It was a union shop, the union had sent me, I had every right. Soon thereafter, soon thereafter, there were the arrests. One Saturday morning, I was, had an apron on, I was cleaning the apartment. <laughs> The bell rang downstairs and they let them in, and there they were, the FBI, with their guns to arrest me. And I've said, since that time, my daughter, children, and my wife, whenever they saw a, a uniform, there was a, a reaction. But that, of course, began the, the struggle for justice. We met 
and I assumed the task of trying to get legal defense. But it was more than just getting a lawyer. It was also to try to show that this was a contradiction to the very principles on which our country was founded. To write the dissent, the right to appeal to people to change the society. That this is basic to democracy. So the search for a lawyer was part of that struggle. My responsibility was to try to reach out as far and as wide as we could, as broad as we could. People who disagreed with us but would defend our right to say it. And so I not only wrote to many people, I knocked on the doors of our most illustrious law firms asking for assistance. In that time, there was a young woman who had just graduated Yale Law School who had made her illustrious mark by defending the Planned Parenthood here in the state. And she volunteered to be one my lawyer. She was mentored by one of our most illustrious constitutional lawyers, Professor Thomas Emerson who became our consultant. There was another lawyer that worked for the United Electrical Radio Machine Workers of America who was a very uh, expert constitutional lawyer, Frank Donner, who volunteered. But there were more. Every, all the defendants were entitled to a lawyer. And therefore, we continue our search, and it was impossible. And finally, the lawyer, the judge, Anderson, had to assign lawyers. And I must tell you now, I felt very sorry for them. Because not only was it a long lawyer, but it was a very complicated, difficult task they had. Yeah, because I, I, one of the newspaper articles said that uh, Alice quoted as sending out 100 mimeograph letters to law firms to try to find attorneys. But the background to this was in the 1949 case in New York City, all five of the defense attorneys were sent to uh, jail on, on charges of contempt for 30 to 60 days. So, and, and then two of them were disbarred and it ruined, their, it ruined most of their careers. And so the idea that uh, you were going to defend Smith Trial Communist Party defendants was not going to be good for your, uh, certainly for your income, to say the least, and possibly your reputation. So, um, you, so we, the, six of, the newspaper says that six of the, of the eight defendants had court-appointed attorneys. You had Catherine Rohrbeck, who we're going to speak about in a minute, uh, and then the, the other, you had a union attorney that represented one of the defendants, right? Yes, Frank Donner. 
Um, and you had Judge Anderson. Uh, at the end of this trial, they had over two million words in the transcript and 9,000 pages. So this was a long 10-month trial. Now, in your defense, uh, your side, your, as a defendant, you always maintained that it wasn't illegal to be a communist and that the First Amendment protected your right to free speech. What kinds of evidence did the prosecution have? Just repeat that. Oh, um, you, you, Al, you always say, you know, you're, it wasn't, and it's true, you, it wasn't illegal to be a communist. Uh, you maintained that free, the First Amendment protected free speech. But I want you to talk a little bit about the kind of evidence that the prosecution presented, because that was a classic. Yeah. <clears throat> when I said I was very sorry for all the lawyers, and I must tell you, I was very, very sorry for the jury. <laughs> because one would think that the prosecution was going to show some acts that we had done, some deeds that we had said or even some words that we had uttered that somehow would be illegal. But imagine seven months of quoting the, the Marxist-Leninist literature. Now, I don't know if any of you have ventured to read any of it. <laughs> but this is beginning in the 1800s, right? where they're trying to prove that capitalism was inadequate for the people, and especially for the working class. I must say, I did go through them, I read them. They are not documents that one would take before bed. <laughs> they're very, Difficult to understand, but you plow through them. What they did is they brought ex-communists, informants, who would say there was a class, or a workshop, or a seminar, whatever word you want to use, and they quoted this paragraph. And based upon this paragraph, it's evident that they support revolution or they support violence. Our lawyers didn't understand it. The jury was unable to understand it. And to sit seven months and listen to this was quite a burden. What was on trial was literature, not people. Ideas, not people, in the United States of America. You're not going to be able to prosecute or persecute workers who want a change of the society. That idea will, be, will go on until there's an equality in our country. And so you had a trial that 
ruined the lives of so many people. You have to really experience it to know what happens when the whole power of the state, the state government, the national government, and the local government is aimed at you. Your boyhood friends cross the street because they don't want to say hello to you. Your neighbors don't say hello anymore. The tension in the household is not only stressful, but dangerous at all. And suddenly, your lives are, are turned around. You're Kenneth Green. I will finish by just telling you this little story. I, I wrote a play called Behind the Wall, which was produced off-Broadway. Since I didn't, I had time on my hands. <laughs> but, but in the While I was being produced, I was looking for work. And the New York Times published an article on Kenneth Green and this play. I went to this office, employment office, and they were interviewing me. And here I'm telling them all about Kenneth Green, right? And there's an article on his desk, on the play. <laughs> and so he knew who I was. We can imagine how you feel, right? This period, was, as I said before, it was the most shameful period in our history. Only matched, maybe, during an earlier revolutionary period, with the Jefferson period, the Alien and Sedition Acts. You can't kill an idea, and you will not kill the struggle of workers for better lives, and you'll not kill the struggle of African-Americans and whites for justice and equality in our country. And this is what a communist is. Now, ultimately, um, Al, you, you happen to be acquitted out of the eight individuals. They had one person they couldn't decide on, so they, that, he was basically acquitted because he could decide. But five of the defendants were, were actually convicted. Now, that, was, that ruling was reversed by the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And I think this is interesting. It was reversed because there was, quote, no direct evidence introduced by the government to prove that the defendants' advocacy of the violent overthrow of the U.S. government 
unquote. Uh, it's the idea that you, they did have expert witnesses that came in and talked about Marx and talked about, talked about Lenin, but there didn't seem to be, in the, at least in the newspaper coverage, as you said, they could never seem to tie it back to an individual uh, saying, yes, tomorrow's the day. So uh, all those people were out on bail. They ultimately did not serve. And in Connecticut, I think we should be proud of the fact that they, the, that decision was reversed. Yes. In some of the other states, people did serve jail time and then had to wait to be, to, uh, right. be up on appeal. So I guess I, I, before I turn it over to Judge Rohrbeck, how did this affect your family? Uh, you know, how did your children feel about it, and how did how stressful was that in terms of you've always lived in New Haven, you stayed in New Haven, you knew people saw it in the newspaper. What was that like? Well, <clears throat> I'm very fond of my city, and very very fond of the people of my my my, my city. I must say that once the, the fear started to, to lift, I felt very comfortable. Yeah. I felt very, very, very comfortable uh, in, in the city. Uh, I, I understood full well what that trial had done to my country. Because in truth, it's 2016, and I received a telephone call and said, Al, they had the word socialism in, in the New York Times. <laughs> 70 years, imagine. <laughs> to cut off discussion and debate where we differ. Don't have to adopt what I say. But let's let's argue it. Let's debate it. And let the American people judge for themselves. Let me turn to my other guest, Judge Warbeck. Thank you so much for coming. You're kind of a representative for Catherine a little bit, and you also have a special guest. But I did want to ask you, Andrew, you come from such a distinguished, both legal and political family, and although Catherine's father was a, was a minister and very probably socially interested, <coughs> uh, she comes from this renowned family. Could you just tell us a little bit about the background for this young woman attorney who took Al's case? First, I want to ask Al, do you remember how long the jury deliberated for? How, how long, long the jury deliberated before they reached, they, they returned no, their I verdict? No, I don't recall. Okay. <laughs> um, Probably too nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, what, what uh, is interesting about Al's attorney is that she was actually uh, graduated from Yale Law School in 1948, and over the past couple of days, I've been listening to a recording of her memorial service at which many of her friends recounted some of her accomplishments. She died in 2007. And what I learned in, in listening to that uh, recording was that in, on May Day in 1949, yes. uh, there had been a picnic of the Communist Party in New Haven, uh, which was disrupted by a group of 
marauding thugs, for lack of a better uh, expression. And that resulted, of course, in the arrest of the members of the Communist Party, uh, who were arraigned and placed on very high bonds. And one of Catherine's first achievements as a very fresh lawyer was to argue that the bond should be reduced, which she evidently did successfully, and which she uh, remembered as one of the high points of her early career. Now, in answer to your question, Catherine, in 1955, Catherine's grandfather had been a member of the Connecticut Supreme Court. Her great uncle had been the chairman of the Republican Party in Connecticut from 1912 till 1937. And her uncle was practicing law in Canaan. So she was the third generation of her family to be practicing law. And her family had actually been about the business of practicing law for 83 years at the time she took on Al's case. And I think, uh, I guess you might nowadays refer to her at least on facially on paper as being a member of the establishment. <laughs> uh, but that having been said, um, there's no better uh, evidence of her willingness to put herself in harm's way than her uh, desire. I'm sure it wasn't, she probably didn't agree to take on your defense reluctantly. My guess is deep within her, she was eager uh, to do the job of a lawyer and yes. to provide you uh, with a defense. And, I, and perhaps we can only speculate if she didn't feel a degree of insulation from some of the political pressures by virtue of her pedigree. I want to just read you some, of, uh, some information about Catherine. And there is a wonderful, on the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame website, there's a wonderful 10-minute videotape of Catherine talking about her career when she was inducted into the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame. We'll be running it on a loop downstairs at the reception, but we'd also love for you to go home and watch that and see her in action. She studied law with the renowned constitutional law scholar Thomas Emerson. He is one of the lawyers that triumphed at the Scottborough uh, Boys Trial in the South. That was with black teenagers that were accused of raping a, a white woman and uh, he helped secure their freedom, and that is a really pivotal case. So he had a, he was a wonderful person for her to study with. She was the only woman in her graduating class at Yale Law School in 1948. <laughs> she, she opened her practice in New Haven at 42 Church Street, and she went on to represent Planned Parenthood. She was a co-founder of the Connecticut Civil Liberties Union, and then these are the kind of people that she defended. Pacifists, feminists, conscientious objectors, communists. And then she was the lead counsel in challenging Connecticut's anti-abortion statutes. In 1971, here in New Haven, she defended Erica Huggins, one of the accused in the New Haven Black Panthers trial. When I was 13, that trial happened. And every night, New Haven's courthouse with Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins was in our living room in South Bend, Indiana. Um, so I would like to turn the mic over, back over to uh, Judge Rohrbeck, and he has a guest to introduce, and then we'll take some questions and some discussion before we have our reception. So uh, briefly, uh, before I ask my dad to come up and uh, recount what it was like to visit his cousin at the, at the trial uh, in 1955, in listening to this recording of, of her memorial service, um, it's reported that Catherine's uncle, uh, very prominent lawyer in Canaan, Connecticut, 
heard on the radio that Catherine had agreed to represent Al in the Smith Act <laughs> and dispatched, uh, made a call to Catherine and told her she better get her tail back to Canaan so they might have a conversation <laughs> about the wisdom of her choice. <laughs> and evidently when she sat down with her uncle, she said to her uncle, uh, Uncle Clint, if you had a woman come into your office and say, my husband needs a lawyer, wouldn't you provide him with a defense? And I guess that left her uncle speechless. And, and she then got in the car and drove back to New Haven with at least the tacit blessing of the more establishment uh, members of her family. And a, another uh, tidbit was that uh, when it was fashionable for people to go get the FBI files that had been compiled about them during this period, uh, many of Catherine's contemporaries and friends went down to Washington and with great pride made copies of the hundreds of pages that the FBI had assembled about them. Catherine went to get to her file and there was one page in it. It said, no need to worry, she's from a fine family. <laughs> so I guess uh, she did trade a little bit on the, uh, the, the reputations for good or for evil uh, of her forebears. But, uh, I, I'd like to invite my dad, Char Charlie Rohrbeck, to come up. He was a first-year law student at Yale Law School uh, when these trials were ongoing, and he's always told me that he made his way to the courthouse to observe the proceedings, and if you'd like to share some of your recollections. Just one observation. Uncle Clint, uh, as Scott's would call him, was a public defender in Mitchell County for decades, so there's a long tradition of public defense in that family. Uh, just a couple of quick observations. Uh, in law school, we did go down and, and watch the trial from time to time. I might have gone a half dozen times, spent two or three hours there observing uh, the, the process, and it was a, an amazing show. If you can imagine, uh, there were eight lawyers or more, uh, eight defendants. All the lawyers were vying for attention and, and trying to get the, the eye of the jury and the judge. Catherine had one tremendous advantage. She was the only woman, so she did not have to uh, work quite as hard at it. But the, the other memory I have, and Al, you, you uh, totally uh, have uh, confirmed that, is her defensive view was based primarily on the law of evidence. And uh, during that trial, the times that I watched, while all the other lawyers were very rhetorical and very verbal, um, Catherine was very studied and very legal and making objections to some of these uh, documents that you spoke of that they tried to use to uh, convict you. And uh, she would not only object, but she would have cases to cite and reasoning to back them up, and her objections would be sustained. And I'm sure not only did that help you, but that probably helped the other defendants who were uh, convicted on appeal, because I expect if you read that case, there probably would have been some evidentiary stuff. So that's my brief recollection. Great, thank you. for just one more minute because one of the consequences of Catherine's representation of Al was during that period, 1955-56, uh, she reported that there were only six members of the New Haven Bar who would associate with her or speak to her or acknowledge her. So she did pay a price in terms of uh, her social uh, standing amongst the bar and she said she never forgot 
who those six people were and always held them uh, in the highest regard. Um, we'd be happy to take a few, a few questions. If you could just stand up with your question so we can hear you. Right here. You know, you never mentioned what happened to the eighth defendant. You said five were drawn out, one was not, um, and then, yeah, and then they, they had so one woman they brought up from New Jersey, I think. And so there were eight altogether because they added the New Jersey yes. woman. And, um, so you're acquitted, one's uh, just sort of thrown out, yeah. and five are convicted. They must have had, did they send her case back to New Jersey? Uh, I wonder what happened. Lots of stone. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you remember? No, the, uh, I recall they, I, I was acquitted and the others were all, Remanded, you know. Oh, okay. All yes, right. yes. And they all had to participate in the appeal. Okay. All right. Let's see. Right here. My question concerns Samuel Gompers. My husband's mother was related to Samuel Gompers. I want to know the difference between a Samuel Gompers and a communist. I don't think he was labeled a communist. Oh, that might be a little <laughs> that might be a little more academic than we're ready for tonight. But uh, Samuel Gomper's philosophy, labor philosophy, versus a communist labor labor philosophy. Well, we we moved away from Samuel Samuel Gomper's. Why? He was an early labor leader, but we did. He wasn't the most militant of uh, uh, yes, labor The irony is that uh, we don't consider the Soviet Union or Russia communist anymore. We don't consider China communist. So there's, uh, I think we need socialists, but I, you know, I don't really understand it. I don't think uh, the Soviet Union is communist or China is not communist. So <coughs> well, where does it stand? Yeah, thanks for your comment. I'm not sure we're prepared to answer that tonight. Are there any question, other questions? For either Andrew or Mr. Rohrbeck, right here. Uh, after the trial was over, was there any opportunity to hear from the jury and what their opinions of the whole experience have been? There's a yellow sheet of paper that uh, has some of the headlines and newspaper articles that I use. And one of the newspaper articles quotes uh, Judge Anderson as being very pleased with the final effect. He thought justice had been served, that democracy was in place, and several of the jurors are quoted as saying they thought they did their job well. And, any comments on the jury? <laughs> as I said before, I felt so sorry for the jury. I, I felt so sorry for the lawyers. Right, uh, who are appointed uh, to go through the, this seven months? I, I thought they were, they, they didn't understand what was going on. Frankly, I think they just accepted the prosecution's uh, insistence that we were communists and therefore ipso facto uh, violent, and our aim was to overthrow the, the government. And the atmosphere in the country was such 
that it would take a very brave soul to sit in that jury box and not believe what the prosecution was saying. Right here. Uh, my late father and a number of his friends felt passionately in favor of the stances you took, even if they didn't necessarily agree. And I know, as you mentioned, a lot of people in Hollywood were targets. And I asked my dad, did Hollywood ever have a reaction? And they came out, they went back, and they said, hi, noon. He's talking about a, the movie High Noon as being a reaction against the McCarthyism of the period, some of the Hollywood movies. Uh, well, of course, Arthur Miller, The Crucible, yep. right? Right. This was it. And he, he, had, he had been called before the House of American Committee, etc. There were attempts to try to awaken the understanding of the American people of what was happening. But I don't know if you saw the, the, the latest movie, Trumbo, but I urge you, if you can, to see it, where Dalton Trumbo, perhaps the most, one of the most distinguished writers at Hollywood, uh, who was the leader, uh, of the Communist Party, it was jailed, etc. And it's a very, I think, a, a very articulate and well done movie trying to explain what happened to the Hollywood, uh, you know, 10 and, and all the actors and actresses who uh, were blacklisted, some left to go to Europe, Mexico, etc., to continue their careers. It is hard to describe the uh, atmosphere at the, at the time. Al, I did, hope it never returns. Did you take the stand in your own defense? Did you testify at the trial? Or did no, you leave it to not. I did not. And I, I took umbrage, actually, of my lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> In the end, it worked out, though, right? <laughs> it was a very, I, I must tell you, I was hurt. <laughs> and I took it subjectively as if they didn't think I was capable of doing it. <laughs> this gentleman in the white. Yes. Uh, Al, how apprehensive are you today that history might be repeating itself, giving given the extreme, rabid, right-wing atmosphere, political atmosphere, we're seeing in our country today. Well, well I, I don't feel the period is comparable, uh, frankly, in my, my mind. Uh, at the same time, I see some very dangerous, dangerous trends. Uh, and the election discussion is not helping uh, this, frankly. Uh, but at this point, I, I, I don't see the very, the very same preconditions. What I should have pointed out, <clears throat> and let me go back for a moment. World War II, the American people dispelled a lot of the nonsense about 
the danger of the Soviet Union, the socialist experiment, etc. And as I said, the, the trade union movement had become extremely large, very influential in our country, 35 million strong. And those who run, ran our country and run our country decided that that had to be put to an end. And, and started with the Dulles brothers who, who were placed in you know, two very important positions, the Secretary of State and, and the head of you know, the FBI and CIA to break that well, alliance because Europe was erupting. There were many socialist countries being developed in Eastern Europe. And I frankly thought that the those who ran our country, own our country, were frightened that it would spread here. And so that, that alliance had to be broken. And those who called for change and called for strengthening the, the working class here had to be stopped. So the legislation of Taft-Hartley where they eliminated the, the right of communists to participate uh, in the trade unions that they had organized, etc. All this, the trials, the executions, all were meant to change the atmosphere in our country. So instead of being an ally and a friend, we suddenly became spies, traitors. I, I don't see the, the same. I hope, certainly I hope the American people have learned from that, from that past. I think our, our youth would, would absolutely resent and, and embody <coughs> such a such a test. And you can see by the reaction of young people to 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 the elections. It's just not the same period. Could it happen? I, I don't want to speculate, but I certainly would want to keep my eyes open. On that note, I will, I'm going to encourage you to come down and join our reception. Elle will be there, Judge Rohrbeck, Mr. Rohrbeck. And I want to thank you all for coming, and I want to thank our guests so much. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Al Martyr, Judge Andrew Rohrbeck, Charles Rohrbeck, and the New Haven Museum. Join Connecticut Explored at its next live event, An Evening with David Gerber, author of The Inventor's Dilemma, The Remarkable Life of H. Joseph Gerber, May 10th, 2016, 5 p.m. in the Hartford History Center at Hartford Public Library. And the next conversations at noon at Connecticut's Old State House, May 24th, for Gaining Religious Equality for Jews, the 1843 Petition, featuring Mary Donahue, me, and the University of Hartford's Dr. Bilal Dabir Sakal.
Find out more about these programs at ctexplore.org slash events. To read stories featured in Grading the Nutmeg and to subscribe to Connecticut Explored or purchase the current or a back issue, visit ctexplored.org.